welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolich. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the endocrine module from the general surgical curriculum. And in today's episode, I'm just going to spend a little bit of time talking about the different genetic endocrine disorders that we're going to need to know about for the exam. The main ones are the MEN syndromes, but I'll also talk a little bit about familial hypocalceric hypercalcemia, succinate dehydrogenase syndrome, von Hippel-Lindau syndrome, and neurofibromatosis type 1. So let's start off with the MEN syndromes. MEN stands for multiple endocrine neoplasia. And in general, there is a MEN1 and MEN2, which is split up into both A and B. Starting with MEN1, MEN1 syndrome is an autosomally dominantly inherited mutation in the MEN1 gene, also called the Menon gene, which is located on chromosome 11. The Menon gene is a tumor suppressor gene, and therefore a mutation in this gene means that it's not doing its job at suppressing tumors, so it predisposes the patient for development of tumors. The specific tumors that MEN1 syndrome patients are affected by include pituitary adenomas, parathyroid hyperplasia, and pancreatic tumors. And this can be remembered as the three Ps, pituitary, parathyroid, and pancreas. Going into these a little bit more, so in terms of the hyperparathyroidism, This is mostly multiglandular disease, and hyperparathyroidism is typically the first manifestation of this disease. So about 40% of patients will develop hyperparathyroidism by 20 years old, and nearly 100% by 50 years old. Because it's multiglandular disease, these patients need a full neck exploration with a subtotal parathyroidectomy and a thymectomy to remove any thymic rests or tissue left in the thymus. If these patients can't undergo surgery, then they may need medical management, such as with bisphosphonates and calcimimetic drugs. In terms of the pituitary tumors, patients get pituitary adenomas, and about 50% of patients with MEN1 will develop a pituitary adenoma. Most of them are prolactinomas about 50% of the time, but you can also get growth hormone secreting, ACTH secreting, and non-functional adenomas. And these are often treated medically. In terms of pancreatic tumors, patients with MEN1 develop pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. About 80% of these are non-functional, so they don't secrete hormones. However, 20% of cases will be functional, and the most common functional neuroendocrine tumor in MEN1 syndrome is a gastronoma. They can also get insulinomas and other functional tumors, but these are rare. If these tumors are non-functional and less than one centimeter, then they're often monitored clinically and with surveillance rather than operated on. Once they're between one and two centimeters, and definitely if they're more than two centimeters in size, they're usually managed with resection. And the 
Pancreatic tumors are what the MEN1 patients have the most morbidity and mortality from. Other tumors that patients with MEN1 can get include foregut carcinoids, which include tumors in the thymus and in the lung and bronchus. They can also get cutaneous manifestations of the disorder. So this can be angiofibromas, collagenomas, and lipomas. And they can also get adrenocortical tumors, but usually these are benign and non-functional. In terms of who to test for MEN1, germline mutation testing should be offered to index patients with MEN1 and their first degree relatives. And testing should be offered at the earliest opportunity because you can develop some of these problems from five years of age. Dermline mutation testing may also be offered to patients with a strange presentation such as multi-gland hyperthyroidism or pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors at a very young age that may be multifocal. You may consider testing them for a mutation. Once a mutation is identified, what do you do for screening? So patients who have an MEN1 syndrome um, and their relatives should be offered a program of clinical, biochemical, and radiological screening. In terms of screening for parathyroid tumors, annual assessment with a plasma calcium and PTH concentration should be used. In terms of pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, as a minimum, an annual blood test should be done for fasting gastrointestinal tract hormone profiles. So this includes gastrin, glucagon, VIP, chromogranin A, and insulin levels with a fasting glucose level as well. But there's not really an optimum radiological screening program that's been determined Uh, It would really be institution dependent. So some places may do an annual pancreatic and duodenal MRI or CT or an endoscopic ultrasound, but I think it depends on your institution. And then in terms of pituitary screening, biochemical screening for pituitary tumors could be an annual assessment of plasma prolactin and insulin-like growth factor 1 levels as well as an MRI of the pituitary every three to five years. The next genetic condition I'm going to talk about is the MEN2 syndromes. So this is MEN2A and 2B. These are autosomally dominantly inherited mutations in the RET proto-oncogene, which is located on chromosome 10. So just to remind ourselves, a proto-oncogene is a gene that if it is mutated with both of the alleles, then it will become an oncogene, which then induces abnormalities and transformation into tumors of the cells that the mutation is in. Starting with MEN2A, the tumors that are most commonly associated with this disease include medullary thyroid cancer pheochromocytomas, and primary hyperparathyroidism. Compared to MEN2B, the medullary thyroid cancer that happens in MEN2A is a less aggressive form and usually happens in the second or third decades of life. 
And there's usually bilateral and multicentric tumors in the thyroid. In terms of the pheochromocytomas, about 50% of patients with MEN2A will develop a pheochromocytoma. And it's a great exam question that if you get a patient diagnosed with a medullary thyroid cancer, you have to think about testing them for plasma metanephrines or urinary catecholamines and a RET mutation, because if you miss the pheo, then you could kill them with the anesthetic for the thyroid cancer. And in about 60s to 80% of patients with MEN2A, the pheochromocytoma will be bilateral. And with the primary hyperparathyroidism, it's usually a hyperplasia, which means multiple glands are involved. And same as MEN1, you'll need to do a multi-gland exploration. And about 40 to 50% of patients with MEN2A will develop primary hyperparathyroidism. Moving to MEN2B, these patients get a medullary thyroid cancer, but they get a much more aggressive type and often much earlier in life. They also get pheochromocytomas, and then they have these other associated gastrointestinal, skeletal, and dermatological abnormalities. This includes a marfanoid body habitus, neuromas, which are small benign nerve tumors, and the typical spot picture is of neuromas on the tongue, so definitely look up a photo of that, and they can also get those on the lips. And then they can also get Hirschsprung's disease or be born with Hirschsprung's disease. I don't know if we'll need to know this for the exam, but I think it's good to know in general that specific mutations at different codons of the gene have been associated with different presentations of the MEN2B syndrome. So, for example, if there's a codon 634 mutation, which is quite common, these patients get a very young development of medullary thyroid cancer. So you'd be taking out their thyroid as a child, and they also have an association with pheochromocytomas. If there's a codon 804 mutation, then they're much more likely to get their medullary thyroid cancer later in life. And patients with a codon 918 uh, can actually be born with medullary thyroid cancer. So they do actually know that specific mutations will change the phenotype of disease and may push you to doing surgery quite young in life compared to waiting until the patient is a bit older. So who should be tested for a RET mutation? In general, anyone who presents with a medullary thyroid cancer should be sent for genetic testing for a RET mutation. Other indications include patients who present with bilateral pheochromocytoma, and they should also be sent for testing for other gene mutations that can cause this, such as neurofibromatosis type 1, von Hippel-Lindau syndrome, and SDH mutations, which we are about to talk about. For patients with primary hyperparathyroidism, RET testing should only be performed if there's also a family history or the presence of associated symptoms like a pheochromocytoma or a medullary thyroid cancer or fibromas or something that makes you suspicious that there's an underlying genetic problem. Once you know that a patient has an MEN2 syndrome, what are the screening options for these patients? 
So patients with MEN2 are at really high risk of developing a medullary thyroid cancer. And you want to look at what the specific codon mutation or the MEN2 subtype the patient has. If a high-risk mutation is found, then the patient should have a total thyroidectomy early in life in order to prevent cancer from developing. So depending on the mutation, this could be as early as in the first few months of life to in childhood or young adulthood. Patients with MEN2B should have their thyroid removed in the first few months of life to one year. And patients with MEN2A should have their thyroid removed by age five, or they can be monitored with calcitonin levels and have an operation if the calcitonin starts to rise. They also should have yearly blood tests for their ionized calcium and parathyroid hormone levels, looking for hyperparathyroidism as well as yearly blood test screening for pheochromocytoma with plasma metanephrines and urinary catecholamines. And they can also have an MRI or a CT scan every four to five years for looking for pheochromocytoma. Um, or obviously this can be done earlier if there's an abnormality in the blood tests. So the next condition I wanted to talk about is familial hypocalceric hypercalcemia. And I mentioned this a few times in the episode about calcium and hyperparathyroidism. So FHH is an inherited disorder and it causes hypercalcemia and a low urine calcium excretion. It's an autosomally dominantly inherited, as all of them usually are, mutation in the gene for the calcium sensing receptor. And apparently there's three different types. There's FHH type 1, which is the most common with this mutation in the calcium sensing receptor. There's FHH type 2, which is a mutation in the GNA11 gene. And there's FHH type 3, which is the second most common, which is mutation in the AP2S1 gene. And basically, mutations in these genes result in altered calcium sensing, so inappropriate parathyroid hormone release with respect to the amount of calcium that's actually in the serum. So usually higher concentrations of calcium are supposed to suppress PTH release, but because the sensing receptors aren't sensing that there's calcium around, there's an inappropriate release of PTH. And it's basically resetting the serum calcium concentration higher than normal. Typically, the patients are completely asymptomatic and they may have a high calcium on the blood test, but they can also get symptoms of hypercalcemia very rarely, which include weakness, fatigue, excessive thirst, abdominal pain, constipation, pancreatitis, renal stones, bony pain, and renal failure or renal disease. Biochemically, they'll have a high calcium and a high or inappropriately normal PTH. And they'll also have a low urine calcium excretion. So this is why you do a 24-hour urinary collection when you're diagnosing someone with primary hyperparathyroidism because you want to rule out FHH. And so they have high calcium and high PTH, but instead of the kidneys working normally and weighing out the calcium, they have a low urine calcium excretion. So less than 200 milligrams 
per day or five millimoles per day would be consistent with a low urine calcium excretion. And you can also do a calcium to creatinine clearance ratio from the 24-hour urinary excretion. And if it's less than 0.01, then it's likely to be FHH. They should also have a normal to high magnesium level because they have reduced tubular reabsorption of magnesium as well. It's important to consider differential diagnoses, so making sure that the patient isn't vitamin D deficient, that they're not just not taking in very much calcium, that they don't have renal failure, and they're not on drugs like thiazides or lithium that will reduce calcium excretion. The diagnosis can be made indirectly by looking at the calcium to creatinine clearance ratio, or you can do genetic testing for this condition. And it's important to differentiate because the treatment of FHH is not surgery. This is not going to cure the problem. Um, And actually, it's medical management, such as with calcimimetics like sinicalcit, which sensitizes the calcium-sensing receptor to calcium and can help normalize the serum calcium. Let's move on to talking about SDH mutations. SDH stands for succinate dehydrogenase. And the succinate dehydrogenase genes include SDHA, SDHB, SDHC, and SDHD. And these are tumor suppressor genes. So SDH mutations are typically autosomally dominantly inherited mutations in these genes that will make this tumor suppressor gene not do its job and increase the likelihood of developing certain tumors. Another term for SDH mutations include hereditary paragangliomas or pheochromocytoma syndrome. Uh, So that gives you a little bit of an idea about what tumors may be associated with this problem. So as you can guess, the first tumor is paragangliomas, and second is pheochromocytomas. These patients are also at risk of developing gastrointestinal stromal tumors, and the SDH-deficient gists are less likely to respond to imatinib. So that's something that's interesting and good to know. And also they can get renal and thyroid cancers. The different genes, the SDH, A, B, C, and D, have different risks of developing pheochromocytomas and paragangliomas, and also different likelihood of those tumors being malignant. So SDHA is very rare. SDHB, about 80% of patients will develop a tumor by the age of 50, and they're typically paragangliomas and have a higher likelihood of being a malignant tumor. SDHC are rare and mostly develop paragangliomas and low chance of malignancy. And SDHD, about 90% of patients will develop a tumor by the age of 50, and they're often paragangliomas with a malignant potential. In terms of surveillance, these are pretty rare, so there's no sort of clear surveillance plan, but patients should have lifelong annual biochemical surveillance, so testing their serum metanephrines and urinary catecholamines, looking for the development of a paraganglioma or pheochromocytoma, and this screening should begin at 10 years of age. Patients may also have 
intermittent imaging with a CT or an MRI scan to look to see if they develop these tumors. And also if they are smokers, these tumors are much more common. So smoking cessation is important advice to give to these patients. Next, we'll talk about von Hippel-Lindau disease. Von Hippel-Lindau disease is an autosomally dominantly inherited condition or mutation in the VHL gene. Patients with von Hippel-Lindau disease are at risk of developing various benign and malignant tumors. These include hemangioblastomas that can develop in the brain and spinal cord and also in the retina and cause blindness. These patients can also develop pheochromocytomas, as well as renal cell carcinomas, specifically clear cell RCC, as well as endolymphatic sac tumors in the inner ear, which can cause hearing loss and balance issues. They also can develop benign cysts in the kidneys, pancreas, and in the liver. Von Hippel-Lindau disease can have quite a varied presentation. So the criteria for genetic testing include more than one hemangioblastoma in the central nervous system or eye, a single hemangioblastoma in the CNS or eye, plus a visceral manifestation, so renal, pancreatic or hepatic cysts, pheochromocytoma or renal cancers. Patients with von Hippel-Lindau need pretty intensive surveillance, so they get yearly laboratory studies including urinalysis, urine cytology, 24-hour urinary catecholamines, CBC count, electrolytes, renal function, and plasma metanephrines. They need an eye examination every two years and an audiology examination at the first sign of any hearing problems. They also need imaging studies, so an annual abdominal ultrasound beginning in teenage years to look at the kidneys, adrenal glands, and pancreas, and an MRI of the brain and spinal cord every two to three years from when they are a teenager. The second last topic we're going to cover today is neurofibromatosis. There are three main types of neurofibromatosis that are clinically and genetically distinct. So the first is neurofibromatosis type 1, also called Recklinghausen disease. There's also neurofibromatosis type 2 and schwannomatosis. So starting us off with neurofibromatosis type 1. This is an autosomally dominantly inherited condition in the NF1 gene, which is on chromosome 11. And the NF1 gene encodes a protein which is called neurofibromin. The clinical presentation of neurofibromatosis type 1 can be quite varied, and there's different things that will present at different age groups. So from birth to age 2, patients may develop cafe au lait macules, which are flat uniformly hyperpigmented lesions on the skin. They can also develop optic gliomas, plexiform neurofibromas, which are very rare. And I would 100% suggest having a look at a picture of these because I had never seen one before and they're pretty uh, distinct. They can also develop pseudoarthroses. From age two to six, patients will develop axillary freckling. 
leash nodules, which are little hamartomas in the iris, so little dark patches in the iris of the eye. And about 90% of adults will have these leash nodules. And they can also develop learning difficulties or speech delay. From age 6 to 10, patients get scoliosis. They can have an increased risk of cancers such as rhabdomyosarcomas. In adolescence, they start developing subcutaneous and cutaneous neurofibromas. And these neurofibromas can develop malignant transformation. And they also can develop isolated malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors, which are a type of sarcoma. And then in adulthood, they just get increasing numbers of these cutaneous and subcutaneous neurofibromas, as well as all the other things that I've mentioned. In terms of the diagnostic criteria or who you screen for neurofibromatosis type 1, patients need to have two or more of the following things. So they need to have more than six cafe au lait macules that are more than five millimeters in diameter in their pre-pubertal years or greater than 15 cafe au lait macules in the post-pubertal years. They need to have more than two neurofibromas or any type of plexiform neurofibroma, freckling in the axillary or inguinal regions, more than two leash nodules, optic gliomas, distinctive bony lesions such as sphenoid dysplasia, thickening of the long bones cortex with or without pseudoarthroses, or a first-degree relative with neurofibromatosis type 1 based on the above criteria. So in terms of the types of tumors that these patients get, they get both benign and malignant tumors at higher frequencies than the normal population. So benign tumors include neurofibromas, which can be cutaneous or subcutaneous. Again, I'd suggest looking up some pictures of these because that's another thing they could put out in the spot exam. In terms of malignant tumors, they get central nervous system tumors such as astrocytomas or gliomas. They have increased risk of sarcomas. I've already mentioned malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors, which often arise from pre-existing neurofibromas and can be quite aggressive. They also have increased risk of rhabdomyosarcomas, GIST tumors. They have increased risk of leukemia and Relevant to the endocrine module is they have an increased risk of pheochromocytomas. Neurofibromatosis type 2 doesn't really fit in with the endocrine module. It is a autosomally dominantly inherited mutation in the NF2 gene, which encodes the protein called Merlin or Schwannomen, and this is a tumor suppressor gene. And the characteristic findings or symptoms associated with NF2 include bilateral acoustic neuromas or vestibular schwannomas. They can also get cataracts at a young age. They usually have less cafe or lay spots than NF1, and they can experience spasms of facial muscles, weakness, numbness, paralysis, difficulty swallowing, impaired speech, and other neurological symptoms. (music) 
And the last condition I'm going to talk about today is hyperparathyroidism jaw tumor syndrome. I promise you that's the name. So this is a autosomally dominantly inherited, like they all are, mutation in the CDC73 gene. And it makes a pretty funny list of symptoms. So these patients get hyperparathyroidism, as the name would suggest, and typically this is in late adolescence or early adulthood. And they also get benign tumors in the jaw, which are called ossifying fibromas. And these can grow quite quickly and be quite disfiguring if they're not treated early. They can also get renal cysts, renal hamartomas, and rarely Wilms tumors. And women can develop benign or malignant tumors in the uterus. The other thing that's important to know about this condition is that patients can develop hyperparathyroidism, but they can also develop parathyroid carcinoma, which is very rare, but good to mention because I don't think I've mentioned it so far. Basically, parathyroid carcinoma is a tumor that develops in the fourth and fifth decades of life usually. And the symptoms that suggest this are a palpable neck mass and a very high elevated serum calcium. And if patients have a hoarse voice, this may also suggest invasion of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. It can be very difficult to manage. If it's localized, then surgery is an on-block resection of that parathyroid gland and the adjacent thyroid lobe, as well as a central neck dissection. And if the patient is not resectable and there's metastatic disease, then medical management to control the calcium is required, typically with bisphosphonates and calcimimetics like sinicalcid. So that finishes off this whirlwind tour on endocrine genetic disorders and everything you need to know. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please leave me a review, rate the podcast and subscribe. It makes it easier for others to find and I really love reading your reviews and hearing from you. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>